0: Hi, Ben. You're here today to talk about uh, David Lewis with me. And by all accounts, this chap, is he's an, he was an interesting character, wasn't he?
1: Yes, he was an interesting character. Uh, I mean, in, in, in my view, he was the, the greatest of the of 20th century analytic philosophers. I think mean, he was a brilliant philosopher. But yes, as a man, he was an interesting man as well. I mean, he, yeah, interesting in the sense that he was kind of uninteresting, that his <laughs> whole life was really philosophy. I mean, well, philosophy and trains apparently. So he used to like to go and um, look at trains a lot, talk about philosophy, write about philosophy, think about philosophy, look at some more trains, and that was that was kind of his life, <laughs> as far as I understand it. But
0: he's a train spotter, that,
1: yeah, a, a bit. So he once came to Nottingham University to give a talk, and um, he was uh, insisted on going to a particular pub afterwards because there was a train station that ran past the or right next to the pub and the trains had run past it. So he got his
0: notebook uh, out.
1: Uh. Yeah, so apparently he sat he sat the whole time afterwards just um pretty much ignoring what everyone was saying because he got so excited by the the trains that he was noting passing by. So yeah, interesting in that sense, you know, an interesting character. But what a mind. What a I mean he was uh, philosophically he was absolutely brilliant.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Uh now you and I uh we I suppose team teach David Lewis stuff and we're going to talk about the material that we teach, the idea of possible worlds and and all that. Yeah. But I get the impression that that's just the tip of the iceberg. David Lewis made contributions to, well, every branch of philosophy in some sense. So I'm wondering, could you maybe perhaps speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a, a little bit. The, the thing is about David Lewis is that he, he did... Span so many areas. I know predominantly about his metaphysics, and that's I think what we're going to be talking about predominantly, today. and that's what that's what he's most well known for. Um, but he made very important contributions in moral philosophy, an, an account indeed of of what it is or what moral properties consist in. So I think his account is a what gets called a response dependence account of of moral properties, but. Don't press me on the details of that view because I, I don't really know. And he also made huge contributions in the philosophy of language, on the idea of conventional meaning, um, and in 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 semantics. He was just a fabulous. Philosophy of logic. He wrote an important book on meriology. Uh, that's the the logic of the part whole relation, for example. Um, in his later work, he was working on the philosophy of quantum mechanics. So he, he's got an important paper on. Uh, a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics um, called the the many worlds interpretation. It's an argument against it. So yeah, he, it, and everything he seemed to write uh, has got this this kind of clarity to it, and takes the the topic by the scruff of the neck and really sort of gets gets to the important points. A brilliant a, a brilliant philosophy. Yeah, um, I guess the the last thing that um, I'll mention on this is there's a couple of recent volumes come out of his philosophical correspondence, his letters that he sent other philosophers. And it, voluminous, it, it, it's in two big volumes, all the, all of these letters. They're being put together, um, edited by Helen Beebe at Manchester University. And the, the letters are just, I've never seen anything like, you know, you can open this book and find a letter on a topic which you never knew that David Lewis was interested in. You know, it might be a topic in Leibniz's historical view on Leibniz or something like this. And you open it up and he's written a letter to someone about it. And it's almost like it's a, it's good enough to be a published paper. These letters, it, his, his breadth seems to have been absolutely incredible.
0: So this new publication, has it revealed anything new or has it revealed areas of interest that he might... Not necessarily be associated with. It's an interesting thought, though, isn't it? Mm. Uh, philosophical letters. I mean, probably <laughs> in the continental uh, tradition of philosophy, we have very famously uh, uh, Heidegger's letters uh, back and forth to Hannah Arendt. And uh, well, people read that basically for gossip, I think, more than anything. Right. But uh, is it is there is there do you think there's something about the the letter writing form? I guess is what I'm asking. But do you think there's something about the letter writing form that's different to his his published work
1: i mean to be honest i don't i don't think so it is almost like he's writing short philosophical papers in his letters you know it it it's it's as good as and the same kind of content as you find in his published papers so his style of he had a very very nice style of writing which he apparently worked on quite considerably basically that was an influence of um, quine so another one of the, the greatest 20th century analytical Philosophers was uh, Willard Van Orman Quine, and um, Lewis studied under him as a student for a while, and adopted or admired Quine's style, and you can see that influence Lewis's style. So he's got this very direct, to the point, yeah, way of writing exemplifies brevity. So you know, it's really quite condensed reasoning, and his letters are just like that. So he's, he's published papers like that, and the letters are. Uh, the same so no I, I don't think i can see any difference in style or in in the way in which you present his ideas yeah so there's anything in there about new and actually i think there are a couple of things in there which are new maybe i'll come to those sure if i forget remind me and i'll try and drop them because we'll, we'll need to talk a bit about the metaphysics before the stuff that's new will make sense i think
0: okay well let's let's talk about the best in metaphysics and uh his major work here is it's on it's called unpossible worlds is that right ben
1: Yeah, on the plurality of worlds. On the plurality
0: of worlds, yeah, on the plurality of worlds. So Lewis is most famous for his theory of possible worlds, which I think comes from, or it's a version of uh, Leibniz's notion of uh, possible worlds, Uh, although I don't think he ends up in the same place as Leibniz does. Um, But let's let's start with a real basic question, then, about his his metaphysics. What is a possible world?
1: Yeah, okay, um... Well, actually, I think it's very easy to answer. It's easy and hard to answer the question, what is a possible world? Um, The easy thing is to, well, I'll put it like this. Do you know what the actual, do you know what the kind of thing that you live in is? (laughs) I suppose.
0: I see. I see. Right. So like, uh, you know, the world I live in is what I take to be the actual world. And it's made up of all types of different objects, processes, and materials in. Let's go with that.
1: Exactly. Exactly, yeah. So um, the world around you, yeah, is made up of objects uh, that you can bang into and trip over tables and chairs and cats and curries, things like this. And that's just what a a, a possible world is. A possible world is just an arrangement of material things across space and time. So the actual world, uh, one important, when we say world, it's probably best to think about these as possible entire universes. So they're not like worlds in terms of possible planets or anything. It's an entire way in which a universe could have been. So our universe is a particular way. It's arranged in terms of the objects, as you just said, tables and chairs, but planets and suns and stars as well going out into the galaxy. And other possible worlds are exactly the same. They're just like the actual world arranged differently.
0: Okay, so that's perhaps a good place to sort of build on that, the idea of a possible world. So how how then does it differ? How does, say, what Lewis considers to be a possible world differ from what I take in my sort of banal experience to be uh, the actual world?
1: Uh, So again, not at all. Um, There is no difference. And um, the the only difference is that we are not located in those possible worlds. We're located... In, in the one that we're in. So a, a nice way of thinking about it is in terms of location, so, uh, and indexical sentences. So an indexical uh, is just, a, well, an indexical is a term which needs a context in order for it to gain a reference. That's a way of thinking about it. So a, a term like here, it's an indexical term. And each person who uses it, the reference of the term is going to be different because it's going to depend upon which location they're in that it refers to. So if I say I am here, I might mean that I'm here in uh, the UK, for example. So I am here. Here in that sentence refers to the UK. But somebody in Australia, if they say I am here, they mean that they're in Australia. And I don't think there's anything special about where I am. It just happens to be the place that I'm located at. Australia is just as real. Uh, there's no difference between it. And the UK in terms of its existence or anything like that. Um, and Lewis thinks about possible worlds in that kind of. When we say the actual world, that just means the world that we're in locates us where we are. In other possible worlds, there are people. In many of them, there are people just like us who have thoughts and they think. And when they think, I am here. Or, I am in the actual world. They refer to their own world. They think their world is actual. We think our world is actual. But that's just like thinking. Uh, the uk is here and people in australia are thinking australia is here for them Um so i think that's the best way to think about it there's nothing special about possible worlds the only thing that's special or sorry nothing special about the actual world um, nothing different about it it's just that we're in it
0: so it's just a way of talking about things which are not here
1: yeah effectively and this is i mean we haven't yet said anything about why he thinks that these things exist right so it's it, It might sound a bit crazy to people. In fact, he was aware that this view does sound crazy. So, you know, um, he he thought he needed (laughs) arguments for it, and he gives some arguments for it. But the key thing is he thinks that we ought to believe in the existence of these things in order to explain modal talk, that is, talk about possibility and necessity.
0: Right, so what does it, what then does, Lewis Lewis's discourse on the plurality of worlds tell us about the nature of modality, because I think of modality. I kind of I'm such probably a bit old fashioned in that I think back to Aristotle, and Aristotle sort of draws yeah. a distinction between, as you know, between the actual and the potential, or the actual and the possible. The actual is that which exists, and the potential is that which uh, might have a tendency to to come into existence, but does not in fact exist. Now Lewis is making a different claim than that. As far as I understand it, he's he's actually saying that possible worlds exist.
1: That's right. So he doesn't think that the possible is some shady realm of half existence or anything like that. Or um, he thinks that yeah, what is possible? Well, the, the way to think about it is to think about take a sentence like uh, there could have been unicorns. Let's say there aren't any, but there could have been. Well, that for Lewis is a modal. It's a modal. Well, it is a modal sentence. It says possibly. There are unicorns, and for Lewis, he just takes the possibly there actually to be what we call a quantifier over. Po- he thinks it means there is a possible world in which a unicorn exists or unicorns exist. So it's a it's a, it's an existential theory. So what is possible is just what exists in other possible worlds.
0: I think that's, this is probably where people start to be a little puzzled with with Lewis. They start thinking, okay, is an outcome of his logic, therefore, that in other possible worlds, he's actually saying that unicorns exist?
1: Yeah, that's right. He's committed, indeed, to the existence of things like unicorns. It's just they don't exist here in our world. They exist in other possible worlds. And that's a very basic idea that he he thinks he can analyze, basically all talk about possibility and necessity. So when we say something like necessarily two plus two equals four. That's a necessary truth. His way of thinking about that is that's a necessary truth because it's one that's true in all possible worlds. So things that are possible, are things that are true in some possible worlds, things that are necessary are things that are true in all possible worlds, and that's the way that's the way he analyses um, possibility.
0: Right. So let's let's that's that's a useful way to to think about it. I think because if he's talking about, say, necessary truths, so uh, we have in philosophy. Uh, dichotomy, I suppose, or a distinction between uh, necessary truths and, I suppose, contingent truths. So contingent truths are tend to be factual truths, roughly, and mm-hmm. necessary truths yeah. are, are true by definition. So, for example, something like, I don't know, yeah, so like such so uh, the mathematical truths, I like one plus one equals two, a uh, triangle has three sides is a geometrical truth, and uh, I don't know, you could have laws about sets and stuff like that. Now, that's that kind of helps to me. So those truths are true in all possible worlds, irrespective of the world, even if there's a world where unicorns exist. But that kind of makes sense to me, if you think about it, because, because, right, when we're talking with mathematical terms, you know, triangles, uh, sets, yeah. or uh, number, or equations, or whatever, in some sense... We don't actually think that they exist, at least in the same sense that we think, you know, yeah. the cup exists or the table uh, exists. So is, is that his innovation then? Is Possible Worlds his way of helping us talk about things which are not are not contingently true, I suppose?
1: I think so. But I mean, he, he, he does want to say that, um, I mean, I, yeah, how can we put this? I think it's the contingent or the things that are possibly true, but not necessarily true, which is most interested in right that's what they it, it, it does turn out to be true that mathematical truths and all the, the others the, the analytic truths that you mentioned things like bachelors are unmarried men and so on which is really to say bachelors are unmarried men is actually to say really i think something like necessarily if anything is a bachelor then it is an unmarried man notice it's got a necessarily on the front that means in all possible worlds if something is a bachelor in that world um so he, he yeah he wants to he does want to analyse those analytic necessary truths in terms of possible worlds. But I think the real use of them comes through things which are possible but not necessarily true. Things like there are... I mean, maybe we could think about it like like this. Um, truths like that, there might have been unicorns, which is, mm-hmm. which, I, which is, I take it, a truth.
0: Right. Uh, so, so Yeah, sorry, Ben, to cut across. but no, am right. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting this. So it's like... He's talking about so possible worlds are kind of possible worlds helps, helps us talk about contingent truth. So what is a contingent truth? So let's break, break it down. Yeah. So say it is a contingent truth that I am sitting here talking to you. So for example, it could have been otherwise. We tried to record this last week. We had a we had a it we is. had a, an aborted effort. Yeah. But I am here. It is true and it's a contingent truth, but it could have been otherwise. I don't know, I might have tripped coming that's
1: up right. the stairs. So, so, on. so, I mean, I was, I was just going to sort of say that when we're talking about things like there could be, there might have been unicorns and so on, that's one thing. It's not very, I mean, it's kind of interesting to us, but what we're really interested in is how things could have been with regards to different from how things actually are, how things could have been, you know, I didn't have any breakfast this morning. I just had a cup of coffee, but I could have had cornflakes for breakfast. You know, um, uh, we talk about counter, counterfactual situations we talk about all the time. You know, what would have happened? if um, G- Germany had won the Second World War, we might ask. We say, well, if Germany had won the Second World War, then, and we draw out conclusions, perhaps we'd all be speaking German now instead of English or something like that. And these are all really understood as, as being, I mean, first of all, if you say, what would have happened if Germany had won the Second World War? We have to think, well, it's possible they could have won the Second World War. And if they had it done, then what would have happened? So Lewis's thought is, possible worlds is, well, we imagine a, a possible world where, they did win the second world war and then we try to figure out well what would have followed from that um so yeah
0: interesting right interesting so is there a i'm trying to figure out is there a heuristic here you said it's useful right so he's talking about counterfactuals okay so ordinarily you know i think i tell my students i'm sure you probably do as well is to to generally avoid counterfactuals you know i mean I don't like counterfactuals. <laughs> just like, you know, it's just, a, just a, a sort of a matter of taste. I mean, it's like, what is the point of talking about it? And you see, for example, to give an example of a counterfactual, you see it in politics a lot, which gets on my nerves. That's, that's just me, right? So what would have happened if, I don't know, Jeremy Corbyn became prime minister and won the last general election, right? Mm-hmm. There's no point talking about that. It's, it's past. It's gone. It doesn't refer to anything specific in the world. Uh, And it is therefore useless. But I think Lewis is making a more uh, subtle point. He's saying in some way that it's useful to talk about these counterfactuals because they tell us something about the world we are in. Is that the case?
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be his general view of what counterfactuals are used for. Um, And I I, I mean, I think his view would be that we use them all the time. Um, So when we're planning for the future, we imagine different ways the future could possibly go. Um, You know, we think, well, what if I do this? What would happen? What if I do that? What would happen? Of course, we know we can't do both of them. We're only going to do one of them. So if we're imagining different future situations, we're really imagining different possible worlds than the one that we necessarily are in, because in the one that we're in, we're only going to do one of those things. So that's a kind of a future-looking counterfactual where you're considering possible worlds not knowing which world you're in at that point i suppose if you don't know what decision you're going to make um so even when we plan things for the future i think it involves a kind of forward-looking counterfactual reasoning but we base those on thinking about what happened in the past um so i don't know think about you know if you leave home at nine or eight thirty to get to work and get stuck in the traffic one of your reasoning is oh if i'd have left earlier I wouldn't have got stuck in this traffic. That's a counterfactual. And the next day that might lead you, by reflection upon that, to leave work, to leave your house a little bit earlier. And So counterfactuals are useful in that sense, I think. But Lewis, his primary aim was to analyse counterfactuals, to try to give an account of what they mean, I think. And that's where he brings in the possible world. Um, So yes, they're useful. And Lewis, I think, thought they were useful. His main aim is to offer an analysis
0: of them. In that sense, I can find see where that would be useful in the philosophical sense, where you're talking about questions of probability and prediction, right? As in, you know, mm-hmm. so you, we, 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 I can see why we do that all the time. As in, I'm going to go to the shop tomorrow, oh it's, it's raining, whatever, you know, or I'll need to take my, uh, I need to take my Mac if it's raining, whatever. Uh, I, I, I just, I think I'm just allergic to counterfactuals, but even, even like yeah. inside sci- sci-fi, like, which, I, you know, I, I love sci-fi or good sci-fi, you know, the, the one genre of sci-fi I don't like is alternative history, right? I, I don't know why it's just, it you know, uh, I suppose an example more recently would be The Man in the High Castle. I'm slightly digressing here, but uh, what is the point about talking about, you know, whether the Nazis won, won World War II, like, you know, they bloody didn't. Yeah. And that's a good yeah. thing, too. So let's let's talk about the actual one. But that's really been helpful to me because, you know, talking about sort of predictive statements and promissory statements and, you know, future statements, that does help me see wh- how this can be useful to to uh, explain explain those things. That's how you wanted to say something.
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, I was thinking of um, if you go back to, I mean, as well as the count, sort of counterfactual reasoning, There are, because you mentioned Aristotle, I was thinking as well that it's not just that it gives us an analysis of counterfactuals that are useful in sort of everyday life, but also that it it gives some sort of answers to some famous historical philosophical problems and um, gives a new kind of analysis and a a new insight into the meaning of uh, various historically important philosophical terms. So the one that comes from Aristotle is the notion of of an essence, right? Mm -hmm. the notion of an essential property and aristotle thought that each thing that exists has got some essential property that makes it what it is so you know he thought that for example species being human we are essentially human and what that means to say that the thing is essentially human um is that it could not have existed without being human it's a modal claim it's about possibility so
0: so its possibilities are its essence
1: uh, yeah uh, in effect yeah or it, it it's rather its essence restricts what's possible for an individual right so you know if if we take it that i'm essentially human that's compatible with me having different colored hair it's compatible with me not having to wear glasses as i do or something like that so you know, we can say there are certain possibilities for me. I might, I could have had different colored hair. I could have, yeah, I could have uh, had perfect vision. I don't. But one thing that's not possible for me, I couldn't have been a dog, right? And the Aristotelian account is supposed to explain that. Why couldn't I have been a dog? Well, because my essence is to be human. It's part of what I am in a metaphysically fundamental or interesting sense. Lewis basically just he doesn't like that. That notion just fades out. It's a mysterious notion, I think, this idea of essence. It's its almost kind of supernatural in a metaphysical way. But Lewis does away with it. He doesn't need essence in his account. So, you know, it, how can I put it? Lewis takes stuff that's in Aristotle, seems to be difficult to make sense of and seems a bit mysterious, and turns it into something which is perfectly understandable. So for him, there's no such thing as an essential property in the Aristotelian sense. I guess what I'm trying to get out here is just that Lewis's work, it pertains and it bears upon a whole host of interesting philosophical issues that were historically of importance and, and gives them a new twist. So I haven't said what that twist twist is yet, but it, it should get some idea that it's important because it rejects that kind of Aristotelian idea.
0: Uh, is there other examples of uh, philosophical problems then that Lewis's discourse has generated what's interesting to me about this bin is that you know philosophers often get accused of not being able to make uh, progress in the yeah. uh, you know we're, we're still talking about aristotle we're still talking about plato and so on and so forth but say mm. you know does it solve does lewis's logic of, of a plurality of worlds could it help solve something like say i don't know the, the you know the, the free will and determinism problem now you know it could could we go and say actually yeah we've solved that one now uh, you know, we're, we're not free.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if, if, hmm, if the free will debate, actually Lewis does have something to say about the free will debate, um, and he's got a very famous paper called Are We Free to Break the Laws, where he responds to um, an argument from Van Imwagen, this guy Peter Van Imwagen, who mm, argues great, Yeah, great, Van Imwagen.
0: Sorry, Yeah, it would, us, do, yeah I oh like no, it Van
1: sure Reagan, yeah. Me too. I think he's another, another great great philosopher. Um, and Van Imwagen's got this a very famous paper as well argument called the incompatibility of free will and determinism and lewis has got a response to that um which actually yeah not in that paper but elsewhere in another paper i think it's in one called new work through a theory of universals he cashes out what determinism means in terms of possible worlds and anyway he argues that it's it's not he's a compatibilist so it's like yeah if you buy into the Lewisian program you get an answer to whether free will is compatible with determinism, for example. You get an answer to what Aristotelian essences really are. You get an answer to, and a bunch of other puzzles. So there's puzzles of material constitution. You know, you've got a, these are traditional philosophical puzzles. You've got a lump of clay, you mould it into a statue. What's going on in that situation? Have you got, once you've moulded it into a statue, how many things are on the table? Is there both a lump of clay and a statue? Or are those two things distinct? Uh, you know, the two things in the same place at the same time, what do we say about that situation? Lewis's metaphysics gives you an answer there. Problems of personal identity, how do we persist over time? Do we persist as animals? Are we identical with the animals that we, you know, that our minds are associated with? Or are we psychological beings who could continue in other bodies? Uh, Lewis gives you an answer to that. A whole host of different philosophical problems all get solved if you buy into Lewis's system.
0: What about the distinction between fiction and reality, say? So let me take a let me take an example off the top of my head. Right. So Lewis believes that possible worlds exist in the modal contingencies that you're talking about. They're real, they're fully real. They're real is the actual world. So there is a real concrete universe where Manchester City beat Manchester United in every single Manchester Derby. Right? Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. In actual fact it's not quite true to say that um uh, there's a world in which manchester uh what, what was it manchester city beat
0: manchester um, united
1: manchester united in all of their matches because in okay so this is one important aspect of, of lewis's view and it's that things only exist in one possible world so you only exist in this possible world um and when we talk about what's possible for you what we're not doing on lewis's view is imagining you inhabiting a different possible world or we're not considering you existing in another possible world and seeing what you did there, what we're doing is we're imagining something that's very much like you, a counterpart of you in that world. So really, we want to say I understand. this, we want to say it's possible for Manchester City to have beaten Manchester United in all of their matches because there is a possible world in which a counterpart of Manchester City beat a counterpart
0: but not the actual City. exactly right yeah. I get it I get it and that does that then speak uh, to uh, the difference between truth and fiction then doesn't it as well
1: I think so so um I mean I'm not so when you were thinking about fiction so we let's take an example let's take the uh, Sherlock Holmes books Right. A, a traditional one that gets used when people discuss fiction in, in uh, analytic philosophy at any rate it's always Sherlock Holmes for some reason, uh, but yeah, he's let's a detective. take. Detective,
0: he's a detective. Yeah, yeah,
1: and yeah, and meant to be very logical. Perhaps he's, perhaps, yeah, perhaps um, many philosophers see Sherlock Holmes as some sort of a uh, uh, fictional hero because of his uh, the way. He, uh, it would seem right, right, for analytic. Who, by the way, would a continental philosopher? It's because he liked
0: drugs. It's because he was a drug addict.
1: <laughs> Could be that. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say what uh, continental philosophers are going to take like. Uh, um, Merceau in uh, Camus Lestrange or something thinkers they're philosophical heroes
0: Christ <laughs> So are around killing Arabs, I'm not sure about that
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway, but we're safer we stick with the yeah. Sherlock Holmes so take Sherlock Holmes, what's the question here so um, the Sherlock Holmes books are um, fictional, they're, they're things that didn't happen, we we do make judgments. so here's a interesting thing about you know, It might not be stated anywhere in the Sherlock Holmes novels how big, how tall Sherlock Holmes is. I don't know whether it is or it isn't, but it, perhaps it never says. What does that mean about Sherlock Holmes in the fictional story? Does it mean that he's, he has got no determinate height or what? And Lewis offers a, a kind of answer to this as well. So he says, well, we can think about fictional stories as being classes of possible worlds i.e. all of those possible worlds which are consistent with what's actually written down. But we import various things into them um, by looking at worlds that... So we basically, you know, when we read the Sherlock Holmes novels, even though it never says how tall he is, we presume that he wasn't four centimetres tall, right? And we presume that he's not um, 26 feet tall or something like that. So there's a range of possibilities which are relevant. He might have been six foot tall, he might have been five foot eleven or something. And the way we we can think about that is the Sherlock Holmes books describe situations which happen in certain possible worlds um, and we limit our attention to those possible worlds which are closest to our own in which they happen. So there is a possible world where a Sherlock Holmes existed and was five foot eleven and did all the things that Sherlock Holmes did. There is one where he's six foot tall and does all the things and so on and so forth. But there is going to be a possible world out there where he's four centimeters tall as well. Uh, it's just we don't think about that one. That one gets cut off from our consider. So reading a fic- book of fiction is almost like reading about a class of possible worlds. You can think about it like that.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's why people sort of say that he's a bit of a sort of a sci-fi philosopher in some sense. You know that he's in some there is some world possible world out there. Where where Sherlock Holmes exists and you know goes around yeah. with Doctor Watson solving crime.
1: Oh yep yeah, yep yeah. those worlds are out. I mean you got to I mean the range of possible worlds is just enough. So okay is it infinite? This is a question. It, oh yeah I think so infinite. Yeah be, yeah I think it has to be infinite because for every, think about it like this for every world that could have been. Well take it like this take the, the the number of particles that there are in the actual world, right. Maybe there are infinitely many in the actual world, I don't know, but take the number of particles that there well, are.
0: Well, we could draw a distinction between infinite and innumerable, perhaps.
1: Yeah, um, but however many there are in the actual world, there could have been one more. So there's a world where there's one more, and then there could have been another one. So there's a world where there's another one, and there could have been another one. and then, So you can quickly get to an infinite number of possible worlds just by realising that there could have been one extra object, and there could have been two extra objects, and three extra objects, and four, and five, and six. You know, no limit. So so yeah, there are infinitely many possible worlds. And this, this is one, of the, one important point I was going to quickly make was Lewis offers us a way of figuring out which things are possible. And it's simply, his account of which things are possible is simply thought of like this. Well, a world is really just an aggregate of particles. So really, he's a physicalist in the sense that he thinks that our world contains no mental, things he does allow by the way that there are possible worlds where there are mental things um you know cartesian minds and, and stuff like that uh, but they're far away because as it, they're not close to the possible world right. but at any rate our world is one that's just made up of an arrangement of particles that's what it is um so all the facts about us when I mean, we've got brains which are just arrangements of particles in various ways from which somehow or other arises our consciousness But effectively. The whole world is an arrangement of particles and you can rearrange those particles however much you want. And if there is, yeah, for every rearrangement of particles that there are, there is a world that's that way. And you can get to pretty much any world you like just by rearranging and adding, adding particles of the same sort, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. I'm wondering, right, in terms of, well, you know, one of the classical philosophical questions is, the epistemological one, how do we ascertain truth or and its conditions? Hmm. I'm wondering where that plays for 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 Lewis. I wonder if there's like an infinite egress. I think I know what you're going to say here. I wanted to try you out, right? I think I know how you're going to answer this. Um. So I'm wondering, you know, when we're talking about infinity, is there an infinite egress there? So if there is, or if there are, innumerable possible worlds, or infinite possible worlds, Right, where it is true, say that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is prime minister, and there is a world that is that exi- that that is the case, according to Lewis. Yep. Then, in that possible world, and indeed in the actual world, can it not be the case that Jeremy Corbyn is and is not the prime minister at the same time, and thereby, I suppose, falling to a contradiction?
1: Um. So okay. Um. I think I see the idea of the question. You might, I might have to ask you to repeat a bit of it. But so, there, but Lewis says this about there is no so a possible world is a possible arrangement of particles, if you like, uh, across space and time. And there is a world in which a counterpart of Jeremy Corbyn is prime minister, and that's just because you know you can arrange the particles in a world such that in a way that mean that he won um, the election. So you, you can keep the world exactly the same up until the point of the election, let's say. So the two worlds, this world and the world in which a counterpart of Jeremy Corbyn wins the election, are going to be the same up until the point when Corbyn won, but then they diverge. So then there's a difference where Corbyn wins. But in none of those worlds, is a contradiction going to be true? So... In no possible world can you have uh, it being the case that or it, it being the case that something is the case and not the case. So
0: that makes sense to me. I, I'm am jo- I'm yeah. just wondering though, in terms of like sort of counterfactuals, would you not have to admit of that in some way? Ah. I'm only kind of, you kind of I think you're following my thoughts that there has to be worlds where contradictions exist if right. all okay. possible worlds.
1: Good. well, Lewis says not. So mm-hmm. Lewis says, um, ah, he's got—I oh, can't remember it now—but he's, he's got this—he's got this thought uh, where he talks about to think that there are worlds where where contradictions are true is—and he, he talks about imagine there's a mountain where contradictions are true, uh, oh, but I can't remember his argument now. Mm. But anyway, he's got this argument that no, there can't be any possible worlds. But interestingly, other people have said, well, sometimes we do reason. Um, using counterfactuals with impossible antecedents, so you know we might we might think something like this. So take an example. Take Goldbach's conjecture. So
0: oh, could you explain that, Ben?
1: Sure, sure. So Goldbach's conjecture is um, the thesis that every even number higher than two is the sum of two prime numbers. So, for example, uh, four is the sum of two and two. Six is the sum of three and three. Eight is the sum of five and three. Ten is the sum of five and five. Twelve is the sum of seven and so on. Uh, so on, right? Seven and five. And the thing about Goldbach's conjecture, it's interesting because um, nobody's ever been able to find a counterexample to it. For every even number that has been checked, and they've they've used computers to check up into you know huge digits, it's always been found that every even number that they've looked at is the sum of two primes. But nobody's ever been able to prove that Goldbach's conjecture is definitely 100, you know, definitely true. Um, yeah, it might be that it's an improvable mathematical statement. In fact, we we know we know that there are going to be some unprovable mathematical statements, and that might be one of them. We don't know which ones they are. So, right, we don't know whether, in other words, there's a, count, there's a counterexample to Goldbach's conjecture out there in somewhere in the infinity of numbers. You know, we can't check that using computers because no matter how far we go, up, there's always more. So here's the point of talking about Goldbach's conjecture. Sorry, I'll get to the point. The point is that we might reason as follows. We might say, well, what would happen if Goldbach's conjecture were true? And what would happen if Goldbach's conjecture were false? Now, one of those is, if it's true, it's necessarily true. And if it's false, it's necessarily false. So On Lewis's view, either Goldbach's conjecture is true in all possible worlds or it's false in all possible worlds. But then if we're using counterfactual reasoning, suppose it's necessarily true and therefore true in all possible worlds. When we say, well, if Goldbach's conjecture is false then, if we imagine that counterfactual, then aren't we imagining an impossible world, one where...
0: Right, yeah. That's kind of what I'm driving at, yeah. Yeah.
1: Some people have pushed that line. For example, one of Lewis's... um, uh, graduate students, a chap called Daniel Nolan, who uh, is in his own right a well-known analytic philosopher now, he thought that you need impossible worlds as well as possible worlds, and he's he's given an account, a broadly Lewisian account, but also including impossible worlds as well. Lewis rejects that. He never he never got on board with that. He never thought you needed impossible worlds, but some people do think that, and have argued for that view.
0: Okay and uh, I'm aware now that we're sort of coming to the close so there is a couple of other things I want to talk to you about yeah in terms of this possible worlds I, we kind of touched on it already the question is i suppose linked to the question of uh, p- probability i think this probably t- to my mind at least this should get to the heart of uh, david lewis's metaphysics although i'm not you know i'm not sort of equipped uh, or knowledgeable enough to say why but, um, well, I can say why, but I don't know if it's accurate, right? So I'll I'll put that to you. In what way does Lewis's discourse of possible worlds relate to the question of probability? In particular, I'm thinking here of the question of causation, you know, that one thing precedes and determines another.
1: Yeah, so um, it's going to be difficult to get to probability, I think. But causation, we can... the fact of the matter is that really touch upon everything that we would need to talk about to really understand Lewis would probably take a sort of five, six hours of, of discussion. So, you know, we're... It's so always next to- week. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, one thing we haven't talked about at all is his commitment to what he calls um, Humeanism. So David Lewis, uh, sorry, David Hume, the uh, 18th century Scottish philosopher... Uh, famously argued that, in fact, there's no such thing as causation. Um, Causation is all in our minds, according to David Hume, roughly speaking. So his view was, every time we see one thing cause another, you know, one billiard ball was one of his favourite examples, banging into another one, we never see the causation there. Um, All we see is one thing happening followed by another. And Hume thought that we kind of, We therefore have this psychological expectation when we see one thing happening and another that it's going to happen like that again and again. So we project this idea, you know, the mental expectation in some sense gets projected into the world. Um, Now
0: that's that that makes just just yeah, that makes sense to me because probability is a type of possibility talk, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. So you know, yeah, Hume thought the ordinary idea or the pre-theoretical intuitive idea of causation is of one thing necessitating another thing that you know when one thing causes another he thinks that we've got this idea of it making the second one happen of necessity there is any causation in the world it's somehow a mental projection into we see one billiard ball hit another um according to Hume we don't actually see one billiard ball cause another, and his his thought was the ordinary intuitive idea of causation is of one thing making another thing happen, one thing necessitating the other. So we think that you know if we throw a, a, a brick at a window and the window smashes, the ordinary idea is that the window had to have smashed once the brick was thrown; it couldn't not have smashed or something like that. And um, yeah, Hume just thinks that's nonsense. Uh, there is there's nothing in the world that makes it the case that The brick necessitates the smashing of the window. And Lewis takes over this position and he thinks that causation, um, it's not a real thing in the world. It doesn't drive things. So, you know, we might think, why does the world carry on in the way that it does? If I let go of something, why does it drop to the floor? If I throw a brick at a window, why does it smash? And a lot of people want to appeal to the laws of nature there and say, well, it's because there are these things called the laws of nature, which act as a kind of a driving force of the universe and drive things on and make things happen according to them. On the Lewisian view, that's all, uh, because he's a Humean, that's all nonsense. Really, the laws of nature, according to Lewis, are just descriptions of regularities that occur across time that's all they are so yeah could the laws of nature be broken yeah of course they could you throw a brick at a window and it smashes there are other possible worlds out there where bricks are thrown and the window doesn't smash and instead the brick bounces off and yeah so there's there's no sense in which the laws of nature are necessary or that they make anything happen in the world so yeah and I think that's going to tie in with the notions of probability as well Probabilities aren't really built into the fabric of the world; rather, um, they are somehow psychological things about us. Right? It, there's no real probability um, in the world; rather, probabilities are all just to do with our knowledge of the world. Something like that. And
0: there's something quite liberating about that. Things could always be otherwise, you know. Things or things could yeah. have been otherwise, even if they're not. You know. Yeah. So the, the the world is as it is for sure, but in another sense. Uh, it shows us that the world could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know. Yeah. If, I don't know what I. I, I think people, I could see where people take ethical succor or even political succor for that. Now I'm not really interested for the, our discussion or, or what sort of Lewis's politics was, but you can yeah. I can kind of see how that's the idea is appealing, other than you know other than things which are necessarily true in all possible worlds.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the one thing that's worth mentioning about this is that another. Thing that we haven't really touched upon is Lewis's eternalism, um, and this means that Lewis thought that the future exists in just the same way as the past. Uh, again, it's a kind of located thing. We, we're in the present moment, but really that's just the moment that we're located at. The future is, for Lewis, already laid out. It's already there. Right? Um, and it's worth it's noting... predetermined. Not, right, but he doesn't think it's predetermined. So, the future is already there, but it doesn't mean that it's determined, and that strikes people as odd. but the way of thinking about it is well, when we say that the future is predetermined, do we just mean that it couldn't be on a, it couldn't be or it can't be any other way than it will be and Lewis thinks that's false, so although the future is will be a certain way, the future could be other ways than it will be. <laughs> Um, because there are other possible worlds in which the future is different from the possible world in in, the the actual world. And you can think about it like this. We think that the past is fixed, in a sense, right? The past is there. You know, all the truths about the fact, so Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon on blah, blah, whatever the date was. Uh, um, Queen Elizabeth II was coronated on whatever that date was. We think all of those things are fixed. They're, they're, They're facts about the past, But of course, that doesn't mean that things couldn't have been otherwise in the past. Things could have been different. Julius Caesar could have crossed the Rubicon on a different day, or uh, Queen Elizabeth could have been coronated on a different day. So although the, the past is a certain way, it could have been a different way. And the same is meant to be true of the future. Although the future is a certain way, it could turn out to be other ways. And that's consistent for Lewis. So yeah, you do get this liberation that even if the future, even if we are, you know, there's only one future, it's still not true that it's it, that's the way the
0: future must be. So it Reminds me of Bergson a little bit. Anyway, we're, uh, that's a different uh, podcast. I think. Uh, well, one of the things that I read in preparation for this, I did manage to get to do some prep for this. but right, yeah. He he, uh, he he wrote it. He wrote an article on on uh, on time travel. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. So. Um, And in some sense, he's, he's, what, what intrigued me about that was his picture of the human being. He pictures us as I understand it. Well, he asks about what's the possible, what is the possibility of tribe travel or what are the conditions of which tribe travel would be possible. But in a way, I get the impression he's actually talking about us, you know, individuals, Ben, Patrick, in the actual world. And he's, he's, he's kind of saying that in some sense, we are actually kind of like time travellers in a way. We move from point A to point B. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. So he he, he says that um, if we're going to ask about the possibility of time travel, we need to give a definition of what time travel is um, because we're all, in a sense, time travellers. Because if, if to be a time traveller was simply to exist at um, two different times, so, you know, you, exist, uh, you existed in 1990, you exist now in 2021, um, so you exist in that time, you exist in this time, Therefore, you know, uh, does that make you a time traveler? He thinks, well, yeah, in a sense, that's true. But in the in the sense in which we want to understand whether time travel is possible, we don't just mean that, right? We mean something else. And he defines it as, so this is in his paper, The Paradoxes of Time Travel. And that's there the he, he, um, he, he defines time travel in terms of personal time and external time. And he says that a time travel, a real, a true time traveler occurs when there's a difference between a person's personal time and external time. And you can think roughly of personal time as being the time that's on your wristwatch. So imagine you're wearing a wristwatch that's accurate, then it's going to have a certain time and a date on it. If you time travel, then the time and the date on your wristwatch is going to differ from the actual the time that yeah in the external world. So that's that's what he means. That's rough. In the end, I think you can't rely upon wristwatches. You've got to rely upon internal bodily processes. Um, but that's the idea.
0: So just to draw things to a close in uh, Ben, I've got one last question for you. And and that's in terms of your own sort of philosophizing and your own writing. Where have you found, you, Lewis, uh, this possible world's discourse valuable?
1: Right so I mean I I really think that hmm, how can I what can I say about that because it, it sort of infects every aspect of my thinking uh, when I when I'm writing about metaphysics uh, because I, I I kind of even in the end if you don't agree with Lewis his view on possible worlds it's usually most you can clearly lay out an issue by by writing it out in Lewisian terms and then there's a way of kind of translating that talk into what other people say um so his his metaphysical view gives you a framework in which to understand metaphysical problems and you can kind of then by tinkering with it understand other people's positions very clearly That's not very, that that doesn't really explain very well
0: um well you think it's valuable in sort of a methodological sense
1: yeah and i mean when i've, I've written papers on personal identity with um, some of them along with uh, uh, an old colleague of mine, Harold Noonan and Harold is not, he doesn't believe in Lewis's view so Harold is what's called an endurantist his his framework is broadly a Lewisian framework apart from that and when I'm writing papers with Harold I always think about it in terms of Lewis's view uh, and then translate it basically into Harold's view so I, I use it as a kind of how I think about things and then you can you can convert it <laughs> if that makes
0: a, sense yeah i mean you know you've written on well, you've written on lots of things you've written on uh, well you know you've uh, you've written on the philosophy of time uh, you've got a book on that yeah you've written on the philosophy of antiques right or you yeah. talk you know is that something for example would you know i could see you know, if you're talking about something like an antique, try to figure out what is what are the necessary and sufficient conditions of an antique, I could see yeah. the, you know where possible worlds discourse would be valuable there, perhaps.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, what? Yeah, so there, one of the things that I was interested in when thinking about antiques is is to do with the persistence conditions of antiques. Like, um, if you've got an, if you've got something at one time, say, suppose you've got an old chest of drawers, an antique chest of drawers, and you convert it into something else you know like a, a washstand or something and this happens a lot in the antique trade people old items get converted from one thing into another um, and then sold as antiques but my question there was well is this legitimate if you've taken like an old chest of drawers and turned it into something else does that very same antique persist or do you destroy the original antique and, in fact, bring into existence a new object, which, you know, ought, ought not to be considered to be an antique, because it's not the original thing that was the antique. That's right. a question. And, um, yeah, putting it in terms of Lewis, Lewis's his view, there the possible worlds don't come in quite so much, but it, it, it's more to do with thinking about um, objects as being space-time worms, really. Things that are spread out across space and time.
0: Space-time um, worms. <laughs> That's yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> Sci-fi. Sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, you see, I would say it's not sci-fi, but the truth about what we are. I think we are, are space-time. space-time worms. Yeah, we, you know, where right now, the whole of you is not present, right? There's just a part of you. I, there's a part of me speaking to a part of you, a temporal part. Uh, and there's a part of me. So, you know, at each moment that I exist, all that's present at any particular moment is just a single part of me. Right. Um, we should
0: we should be clear. You're not talking about literal worms here. Like you're talking about it in the yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It not a def- it's a physics, I guess, yeah.
1: Yeah, pe- persons and all other objects on this view are just, um, yeah, aggregates of um, temporal parts. So, you know, the table is made up of lots of different slices, temporal slices of a table from the, the moment it's made to the moment it gets destroyed. But the table itself is, is the whole of the the summation of all of those stages, and people are the summation of those person stages you know and and they're, they're thinking about antiques then the question is okay well um is there um i mean there is an object that's composed of the the, the parts of the drawers before it gets changed into a washstand and the parts that, uh, afterwards that are the washstand and the question is is that worm itself an antique or not or do we have to say that in fact the yeah the antique finishes a bit earlier you know for these sorts of things what i really need is is a whiteboard and to do do terrible drawings to try and illustrate what i'm talking about i'm finding myself
0: you do some good whiteboarding ben (laughs) i've seen it i'm
1: finding myself as i'm talking to you sort of drawing in the air as if i'm drawing little pictures
0: (laughs) so that's what's happening over there (laughs) yeah (laughs) so
1: I'm, I'm, i'm aware that what i'm saying here is difficult to visualize you need a little visual aid, I think, to fully get across what I'm talking about here. But hopefully it makes sense. So on this kind of a view, yeah, we're, we're these types of uh, space-time worms, yeah.
0: Okay, uh, so we should probably finish it there. I don't know. I was going to talk to you about Heidegger, but maybe we can do that another day.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm interested. Um, I mean, uh, I, I, well, am, I am aware I've only we've only scratched the surface and tried to get some of the key mm. ideas in
0: um, about sounds, Lewis. Yeah. That's that's well. The thing about him is he sounds he's very intriguing, and you've and you've I think you've presented his ideas in a very very clear and uh are, well as clear as would possibly can because it is quite abstract all this stuff. Heidegger would probably what would Heidegger do with this? He would probably say that there's something irrefutable about this. It's irrefutable, you know. It's it's not it's, yeah. It's not it's neither refutable or irrefutable, right? But it's uh well, I mean that would be a that would be a compliment for Heidegger, I think. Right. Well, you know, because it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, no, I, you know, I don't mean in that in the sort of the, the vague sense that Heidegger talks at abstract prose. But I mean in the sense that if it's irrefutable, it's therefore true, isn't it? So there was something, uh, there's something yeah, I, uh, good about it, uh, there's I a, think. Yeah.
1: There's a thing there, I mean, that, that brings us really to the issue of philosophical methodology, I think. And mm. um, yeah, on, on this front, Lewis was what's called, he believed in what's called reflective equilibrium. But my, this might take us too far. From what we, but yeah, so Lewis's own view was um, he thought that his whole philosophical system, because all of the bits fitted together, in you know they all it's a coherent system. Uh, he's like Hegel. He, yeah, he was a system building philosopher. He's he, in, in the yeah, so
0: that narrow sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, in, in the introduction to his philosophical papers, he, he says he wished he wasn't um, such a systematic philosopher, and he, he wished that he could take problems more piecemeal. Um, but he, he says that he keeps using ideas that he's developed elsewhere and applying. So he was, I, I think you have to read that a bit tongue-in-cheek, I think he was pleased that he was a system-building philosopher. But the point is, he thought that there were probably other equally as good philosophical systems out there that could explain as much as his could. Um, and on the question of truth he says well we might never know you know i've got this system that you know has got uh, explains things in one way you've got another perfectly coherent system that explains it in another we might have done all the arguments that we've we that we could give we might have made all the tricky distinctions that we can make and we can't you know decide between my system and your system does that mean that we're both right no he says who's right depends upon how things actually are <laughs>
0: So that's reflective equilibrium,
1: then, is it? Yeah, I mean, the reflective equilibrium is the method to come to that that resting point, the overall system. You start off with your intuitions, which is your kind of common sense views about how things are. Uh, Then you come up with philosophical theories to try to explain them. And um, sometimes, necessarily, really, the philosophical theory is going to come into conflict with the common sense views once you draw out the consequences of it. And then you've got an option, you either revise your common sense view and give up on it, or you try and tinker with the theory to get it to fit. And the idea is you go backwards and forwards between your common sense views, sometimes giving some of those up, sometimes tinkering with the theory. And the idea is if you do that, at the end of inquiry, you'll come to a reflective equilibrium where the set of your common sense views revised and the theory suitably tinkered with cohere with each other and that's what he, I think he thinks he, he gets close to in his philosophical system it's a, a resting point of, of reflective
0: equilibrium. That's a great place to end I think Ben.